Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you're dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. I can't help but think that moment between when we dismiss the children and when they leave, that's the sound of rejoicing. I'd like to pray, and then we'll get into God's Word this morning. So would you pray with me? God, you are the God who is faithful to be with us, to meet us, to reveal yourself to us. Thank you that that is true. Thank you that you are reliable. Thank you that you are faithful. God, I ask that you'd give us ears to hear that you'd give us eyes to see, that you'd surprise us, that you'd help us to be attentive to your work in our lives and in the lives of others around us in this church and in our city. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in between series right now. We'll start up another series uh, on the 26th. Um, And that's always a blessing and a curse, which Pat alluded to last week. And the blessing is... You can think about whatever you want um, to, to talk about, and the curse is you can think about whatever you want um, to talk about. And usually what happens in that period of time is, for me, whenever I'm able or have an opportunity to preach on something, um, I'd like to, I begin to think about where I've been, maybe things that God has been doing in my life, um, particular passages of Scripture I can't help but get around and uh, meditate on. And so that's this morning, actually. Philippians 4 has been one of those passages since the fall, for whatever reason, that I keep coming back to. And it's one of those passages, I think, that uh, it presents a way of being and a life that I want to live into. And it's also very convicting because it becomes a mirror of the ways in which my life is not that way, and it's different. So it's both an invitation and it's also a challenge. Uh, And so I want to talk through some of that invitation and challenge this morning 
and how I feel like God has been doing a work in my life and perhaps what he might want to say to us um, through it. So this is not a sermon where I have arrived somewhere. I'm like, guys, this is so good. Join me. Uh, this is one of these sermons where I feel as if I'm, I'm wanting to, to, to live into something, and I would, love, I would love people to join me in that wrestling, in that process, in that journey. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if you want, you can open up your Bibles to Philippians 4. It's on page 982. Uh, in the Blue Bible, which is underneath your seat if you need one. And if you have maybe a device that you'd like to use, don't use it. Use a Bible and open it up to page 982. Uh, it's, part of, it's part of the practice we're going to be engaging in this morning. Uh, so just a little bit of context of Philippians and, and where we find ourselves, at least in this passage and the, and the book and the letter as a whole. So Philippians was written by Paul from prison to a community that he started early on. And Philippi, where this community is, is actually a Roman colony. And many of the inhabitants of that colony are, are ex-Roman soldiers who are retired, who, are, who have found themselves there. And there's this new community of Christ followers. And so Paul is wanting to write them a letter of encouragement, of of trying to present them with a way of being uh, that is connected to Jesus and how Jesus is the example, but really out of his own life, of how he has made Christ the center of his life, how the example of Christ has shaped him and has really produced a life of joy. So Philippians is marked by this incessant um, reminder that the Christian life is one to be primarily marked by joy. Now, I've joked before, that's not so much of, of a joke, that I'm, I'm more melancholic in personality, so joy um, is hard to come by sometimes, or it, it feels sometimes like it's inauthentic, and me, I, I'm all about authenticity, right? I mean, I'm a millennial, that's a big deal, um, and if you're joyful, and if you're smiling, <laughs> what's really going on? Um, and... But I think that the Philippians as a letter is really, it's an encouragement and a challenge to me to say, no, the Christian life is one marked by joy. And Paul, writing from prison, is no stranger to persecution or to challenge. And yet what he's wanting to reveal through his letter is that these things, these parts of his life have become teachers to him. Teachers into a life of dependence on Jesus, that one's life shaped primarily by Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that example, that wonderful hymn of who Christ is, of humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that God raised him, that that becomes the crux of his life, the example that his life is to be following and to be shaped by. So Philippians is trying to do that work, that all of life is to be shaped by the example of Jesus, which then will produce a life marked by joy. And primarily joy that comes from a deep and lasting dependence on Christ for life and for living. So our passage, our text, finds itself at the end of the letter where Paul is giving and providing different exhortations. What he wants to leave them with. And what he wants to leave them with are a few things. And he wants to remind them that here is the way, the shape that your life is to take. It's supposed to be marked by rejoicing, by joy, by prayer, by thanksgiving, and by contemplation. So by rejoicing, 
by prayer, by thanksgiving, and by contemplation. So with that in mind, let's just read through the text again. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let prayer or let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So if you read that in context of the four things that I suggested, Paul is wanting these people's lives to be shaped by, to be marked by rejoicing, by prayer, by thanksgiving, and by contemplation. That it's to be a life that rejoices, that sees the things that God has done, to name them. And it's also a life to be marked by prayer, not by anxiety, not by worry, not by fear, which for Christians in this place, primarily occupied by retired Roman soldiers and by persecution, is clearly a message that needs to be heard, not by anxiety, but again by prayer. And it's also to be a life marked by contemplation, that what we think about, what we concern ourselves with, what our minds are occupied by matters. So by rejoicing, by prayer, by thanksgiving, and by contemplation. And if you read the text, and as we did, you'll see that that actually this way of being results in two things. It has both an outward affect and an inward. The outward is gentleness. So if we're to be a people marked by rejoicing, by prayer, by thanksgiving, by contemplation, we will be people whose gentleness needs to be on display. We will be gentle We will have gentleness, but it's also inward. We will have peace. More than once in this passage, there's a continual reminder that God will give us peace if our lives are shaped by these things. Gentleness and peace. Does that not sound very compelling? I would love my life to be marked by gentleness and by peace. And it's amazing that when my life is not marked by peace, very rarely do I exhibit gentleness. Um, and I heard an amen, so I think that's, that's true for most people. But I remember reading this passage, or at least I, I didn't read it. I remember in a, in a state, probably years ago, of really deep anxiety. And I, I was going through some just intense, um, anxious moments. And I remember confessing that to somebody, somebody close to me. And they said, well, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer. In petition, let your request be made known to God. Uh, and I, I remember being so frustrated by that because it's as if, oh, okay, yeah, sweet, I'm good, I'm better. All of a sudden, it's like amazing how that works. But I was so annoyed by this person who was close to me and who said that they loved me uh, and that, that as if there was this quick fix, as if there was not supposed to be any anxiety because if I just prayed it would go away. And I remember replying in a harsh tone, which really wasn't harsh. I mean, my harsh is like, 
no, right? Like, or I don't even know what it is. I just don't have a harsh tone. But inside, you should have seen me inside. I was like, I was throwing things. But I said, you know, the reason, the reason this passage was written is because people deal with anxiety. The reason why this passage and why there is this, this exhortation to be different is because it's a reality that we wrestle with. And that somehow, even in our anxious being, in our anxious thoughts, in our anxious lives, that there is a way through it, primarily marked by these qualities of rejoicing, of prayer, of thanksgiving, and of contemplation. That it doesn't say you shouldn't have it. It actually says that, that there is a way through it. And not even a way around anxiety. Don't hear that. Because I don't think that there is often a way around it. It's a part of what it means to be a human being. But there are ways through it. And I think Paul offers us a way of being, a way, a qualities of life that actually help us to be people who aren't marked by anxiety, who aren't marked by whatever the opposite of gentleness, right? Like a, like a controlling, manipulative, um, just tight-fisted way of being. And that it's actually... There's a way of, of not being so frenzied and frantic, but God wants to offer peace. And if you notice that these truths, that there are truths that undergird these ways of being and this inward and outward effect in our lives, and there are these promises that God is near, right? If you read the text, rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4, again I will say rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. There's this truth that, of God's nearness and closeness that helps to undergird this way of being, this way marked by Christ. But also, there is, in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's this truth about God that he is near, but there's also this truth about God that he was with us, faithful to guard our hearts and our minds. And as I've been thinking about this text and this passage, and as I've been convicted by it, it presents this way of, of being with Jesus, this approach to life that is often contrary to mine. One of the ways that it gets at this is it describes this loving union with Jesus. All of Philippians is describing that the, that the life of Christ, the example that Christ has set is to be the center, and everything about life flows out of that. And there's this symbiotic relationship between being close to God and the type of person I am, and the type of person I am in my closeness to God, that somehow those are interlinked, and it matters how I live, because how I live comes out of my relationship to Jesus. But it also matters how I am living, because then it also assumes the ways in which I'm able to see and be attentive and be aware of God's presence in my life. So there's this ongoing relationship between these two things. It's what Pete Segazzaro, um, a pastor from a church in New York, called Loving Union. And he says this, In loving union with Jesus, we keep the door wide open. We allow the will of God to have full access to every area of our lives. Cultivating this kind of relationship with God can't be hurried or rushed. We must slow down and build into our lives a structure and rhythm that make this kind of loving surrender routinely possible. The question we must wrestle with is this. In what ways does my current pace of life enhance 
or diminish my ability to allow God's will and presence full scope in my life? Think about that question. In what ways does my current pace of life enhance or diminish my ability to allow God's will and presence full scope in my life? What Pete Scazzaro refers to as loving union, Jesus talks about in John 15 as abiding. That there is a way of life that we are called to to abide with Christ. To be close to Jesus in this lifelong process of deep, rich relationship to Christ. And that our lives will then be shaped by that relationship, by that nearness, by that closeness. And will result in a type of life that Paul is describing here. So this loving union that we are called to comes out of a life of intent. That's one of the, it's another thing I'm convicted by in this passage. That this life does not happen by accident. Paul is actually exhorting people to a certain way of living. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, and contemplating. But then he also talks about, later on in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That these things don't happen by accident. The Christian life, as Christ has revealed it, as God has called us into, is a life that is grown, that is shaped, that is formed by a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson calls it. That there are ways of being, there are ways of thinking, there are actually practices and habits that are to inform our lives that help us walk closely with Jesus in an abiding way so that our lives are then shaped by this peace, by this gentleness, by this sacrificial servant way of living, as Jesus described, by love. That these are possible if our lives are actually lived with intent in closeness to Jesus in a very specific and way that Jesus has laid out. So it's a life of intent. And as I've been thinking about this, okay, this sounds great, but what gets in the way? Like, I want this life. That's the thing, as I've been thinking about Philippians 4, I want this. As I think about abiding, I want to abide with Jesus in an ongoing, long obedience type way. But what gets in the way? And for me, personally, and I think it's true culturally, is a life of hurry. A life of hurry. That we live hurried, frantic, frenzied lives. Amen? I think that's true. And I think a life of hurry fosters a life of distraction, which actually pulls us away from this loving union, from this abiding way of Jesus. There's this story this pastor in in uh, Northern California tells. His name's John Ortberg. And he tells this story that he was like in this crazy pace of, of life as a pastor. He's, and he's near San Francisco, so I think even culturally speaking, that area is pretty similar to Southern California in terms of its pace. And he needed some spiritual guidance. So he, had, he could go visit Dallas Willard, um, which is Great. I just need spiritual guidance. Okay, Dallas. Hey. So he calls Dallas, and he, he spends some time with Dallas, and he begins to describe the pace of life that he has. And, and he's asking for what to do. I get, this doesn't seem sustainable. I don't know what's got to give, or I don't even know what the next steps are. And this is what Dallas says to him. You must, be, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And so John Ortberg says, okay, that's a good one. He wrote it down. Um, 
so what's next? And, and Dallas said, well, there's nothing else. <laughs> you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he says, hurry is the great spiritual enemy of life with Jesus. It's the great enemy of our spiritual life with Jesus. That's, that's what hurry is. This frantic, frenzied pace of living. And I think it's so easy for me to think, well, this is the life that I have. This is where I live. I'm in Southern California. I have three children, and they're small, and they work against me. Uh, and, <laughs> and there are so many excuses, I think, that, we, that I create and present to myself that give me, give me license to live a frenzied life marked by hurry. But if there is one thing that we are to do according to one of the great spiritual teachers of what it means to live a life of Jesus is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty convicting statement. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this about the great spiritual gift of our culture called multitasking. Multitasking is the drive to be more than we are, to control more than we do, to extend our power and our effectiveness. Such practice yields a divided self with full attention given to nothing. It's a great, it's a great challenge that I can both feed my daughter and check my email at the same time. And you think I'm joking. That is not a joke. It is a great spiritual challenge to attempt to be present to Jesus and to be constantly aware of all the things I'm supposed to do, should do, need to do, all the different things that people expect me to do, all the different questions that people are asking all the time. One thing I really want to be able to do and learn how to do is to do what I'm doing. I really want to be a person who is completely doing what they're doing. And I think as followers of Jesus into this life that we've been invited to by Jesus, this life marked by gentleness, by peace, it is a very difficult and tricky life to live in 2020 Southern California. We have complete access to anything and everything we want. We can do what feels like anything we want to do when we want to do it. And yet I can't help but think we're living lives we don't want to live. Lives marked by frenzy, by hurry, by worry, by anxiety, by a constant and relentless need to do something else. That is hard. That is a great spiritual challenge before us. And so what's the way forward? I don't know. We need to work together. No, I do think that the scripture gives us things, gives us at least one practice that I'm going to encourage us to step into. And it's the practice of Sabbath. Sabbath way of living. <laughs> you guys are thinking, okay, Sabbath. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Um, let's see how... Let's, out, let's see what he's going to say about it this time. So I might actually want to do it. Uh, but Sabbath is one of these practices that has been since the beginning of time that the God who created all things took a day to delight in what he's made. 
And we, as people who are culture makers in following God's work and will, are called to do the same, that somehow we are being less than who we are if we're not able to rest. We're being less of the image that God has made it possible for us to be if we can't take time to stop. Walter Brueggemann again says this, Sabbath is not simply the pause that refreshes, it is the pause that transforms. Whereas God's people are always tempted to acquisitiveness, Sabbath is an invitation to receptivity, an acknowledgement that what is needed is given and need not be seized. We are. We have a, this, this, this drive to acquire and to seize and to gain. And yet we have been given this wonderful gift to say, no, you don't need to. The world actually continues despite you, which is an incredible gift to know and sometimes really a really big fear to admit, right? I would like to think that if I stopped, the world might stop. Somehow that doesn't work. And I need to be able to live into the gift of that truth. So the APA, the American Psychological Association, puts out a stress survey every single year. And every year the results are the same. Guess what? Stress levels have risen. Um, and it's been going on for so long that the stress levels continue to increase. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, it's rampant in our society, specifically in younger people. Something's got to give, right? If we want to be the type of people that Paul is talking about, that Jesus has made it possible for us to be, we need a different way of being, a different way of living, different practices that help undergird the life that we've been called into. And I think Sabbath is one of those practices to at least step into, risk stepping into, to try. And I can hear your thoughts because they're my thoughts. I don't know how. I don't know where that's going to work. Honestly, if you looked at my schedule, you would not be able to locate a 24-hour period of time where I would be able to Sabbath. And I could say to you, ditto. If you were to look at my schedule, currently as it is, you would not be able to find a time where I think I could actually Sabbath. But that's going, at about, that's going about it the wrong way. I was talking about Sabbath with somebody, and this person said to me, I mean, do they work? Uh, do they have kids? Um, do, are there kids in baseball? Uh, are, are, are there kids at school? Do they have play? I mean, there's, the questions are, are relentless. But to, say, to look at my schedule and to say, where is the space? is to start at it from the wrong place, right? If we are to live into the people God has called us to be, to be people who rejoice and pray and give thanks and contemplate, then that's where we need to start. And then to ask, well, how do these other things fit into that? So if I'm called to be a person who abides in Jesus, that becomes the place where I begin. And then we begin to ask the question, okay, so where does baseball fit into that? What does it look like to, to both be somebody who's so committed to abiding and then to be um, people who cart around kids to baseball games and practices? Now, I'm not actually saying that those need to leave. I bet you some things do. But I'm saying that the practice of abiding with Jesus and the practice that, practices that Paul gives to us, they begin to inform those other things that we're doing. And they, give, they begin to give them different shape. Abraham Joshua Heschel, 
a great Jewish teacher, talks about Sabbath as being a sanctuary in time. That somehow, when we practice Sabbath, it actually creates this opportunity to see, to be attentive to, to be aware of God's presence in all of reality in life. That this is what Sabbath, these types of practices, make possible. Well, here are some ways I'm going to suggest to, to step into Sabbath. And these aren't my practices. It's actually Pete Scazzaro, the, the pastor I referenced earlier. These are his ways of describing what a Sabbath could look like. He says it needs to incorporate stopping. You need to stop from what we're doing. And undergirding all of this are the, are, is the practice of prayer as well. But we need to stop from what we're doing and we need to rest. We need to be people who rest. We also need to be people who delight, who actually take in, who enjoy what it is that we're doing. If you have young kids, when was the last time you enjoyed a meal? I did last night because I didn't have my kids with me, and it was awesome. Um, but but I'm, like, I'm being really serious. It's so easy to use, or to use all these excuses to not be the people or the person that I feel like I want to be. So stopping, resting, delighting. Delighting in life as it's been given to me. The things that I have. The things and the people who are near me. And then to contemplate. To contemplate scripture. To be still with God. To contemplate his truths and, and his promises. To contemplate that, that time, that life, that everything, this church, these people are gifts from God. So what does a Sabbath look like? Stopping, resting, delighting, and contemplating. And I'm not trying to shame you to say, oh, you don't have this. I, I don't. I, this is something I want. And I, this is something I want to live into. And I think, imagine if we were a people who were committed to this way of being. The type of, of light that it might be to the world. Well, how can you guys live that way? Well, we believe in a God who is responsible and faithful to the world that he has made. I mean, that is what we are doing if we are able to do this. So I would consider, perhaps this week, trying to do this sometime each day, stopping, delighting, or stopping, resting, delighting, contemplating, having a sanctuary of time set aside in your every day. And then perhaps it could be a longer stretch of time in your week. And then perhaps what would it look like? As you, as you hear from these people who really practice Sabbath, they talk about these types of rhythms daily, weekly, quarterly, yearly. That there are ways of being in the world that we might be called to, that God has invited us into, that might actually transform and shape the way that we engage and interact with the world. And I think what Sabbath helps us do is what Stanley Hauerwas calls becoming a friend of time. That we can be people who become a friend of time. And he says this, the movement that Jesus begins is constituted by people who believe that they have all the time in the world made possible by God's patience to challenge the world's impatient violence by cross and resurrection. By virtue of being called into life with God and with Jesus, that we have all the time in the world. We have all the time in the world to be the people God has called us to be. 
all the time in the world to actually resist the inpatient violence. And this violence might look like violence on a large scale, something like war, but it could also look like the little violences that we might um, enact with one another, a disregard or a small manipulation or an oppression. I mean, if you think about it, much of our lives and the sin that we do comes out of this inability to be people who trust in the gift and goodness of God and thereby become people who are impatient and try to coerce and manipulate. But this is a different way of being that we can become friends of time. And that I think Sabbath and a practice like that helps us to foster that way of being in the world. Where we are a people who have been given the opportunity to be God's sons and daughters and to live in the world with others in a way that is wholly different, in a way that is marked by love, in a way that is marked by gentleness, in a way that is marked by peace. So thanks be to the God who in Christ has made it possible for us to abide with him, to be his friends, and to be people who are friends of time.